Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Pauley, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. This episode is another conversation Wes McAdams had with Stephen Cuffell, this time on unity. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, welcome back to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm joined again by my friend Stephen Cuffell. Thank you, Stephen, for being with us again today, brother. It is a blessing to be here, as always. I've really enjoyed the discussions that we've had so far, and I'm looking forward to to having this discussion with you because I think that this one, I, I don't know that there is any greater topic or more important topic to discuss for Christians than than that of unity. I agree. Um, um, the yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I agree. <laughs> You're totally yeah. right. Yeah, it it really is. It it really is the most important, um, and sometimes unfortunately it gets put on the back burner. Uh, the question. I'll just read the question that we got from one of our listeners, and then we will jump into the conversation. Uh, Rachel asked, "How can we keep unity when our biblical perspective is so different?" Uh, and obviously that's a great question, and I know that we're not going to settle this because for 2,000 years, uh, Christians have been dealing with this exact question, how do we have unity when our perspectives are so very different? Um, so let's start, Stephen, by just talking about unity in a really general way. Like, what what is it? What do we mean by unity? Um, and let's just kind of start with sort of a definition or some clarification maybe that we might need to have. Yeah, I, th- I think sometimes we mistakenly believe that unity means we have to agree about everything. Mm. And uh, one of the cool things about the word unity that actually shows up in the New Testament text is is it means to be in harmony. And when you think about music, in order for harmony to exist, there has to be different notes. And so unity isn't uh, a uniformity, but it is the blending together of different understandings within a framework. Like to, to have a chord, you have a framework that builds a chord, and you, you have to have all those different notes present. And so if you want to kind of think about that as far as Christianity is concerned, there is a framework or a way to think. And as long as you're within that framework, then you're part of the chord, you're part of the harmony. And I think the, the biggest problem that I have run into is people mistaking those two concepts, uh, unity and uniformity. They're not the same thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that 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 becomes an obstacle, an unnecessary obstacle to unity when we believe that we cannot have unity with anyone if we disagree with them on anything whatsoever, because it's right. never going to happen. In fact, I, I have a preacher friend that always likes to say that we have a tendency to keep drawing the circle smaller and smaller until we can't even stand up in it, uh, because after a while you'll find you don't even agree with yourself on everything, so, yes. so there's always going to be differences. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I've, I find that if, if, if I were to get into a conversation with myself from 10 years ago, I, I don't think my, my past self would like me very much. <laughs> and so it, there should be growing. And as we grow, hopefully we become more gracious and more patient and not less so. Yeah. And I think if, if we could acknowledge even that element right there, that we were saved— when we we were a child of God, we were within the church, we were loved by God and in fellowship with God and with his son. When we 
were who we were a year ago or five years ago, and, and we still are. By the grace of God, we were then and we are now, and then acknowledge that there are people within our fellowship, within our oneness, within our unity, that are where we were five years ago, or they are where we will be in five years, that the church is made up of people that are at different places on this journey of sanctification and knowledge and growth. And if we believe that we have to be uniform in everything that we think and our growth, then there's no place in the church for people that are more mature than us or less mature than us. And and that would be such a huge mistake. In fact, one of the things that I was thinking about as we, as I was preparing for this conversation, was Thomas Campbell's uh, thirteen propositions uh, that he set forth in the Declaration. Um, sorry, the what was what did he call that? Um, I can't remember the. Anyway, 13 propositions that, that Thomas Campbell wrote out and was sort of kicked off the, the restoration movement. Um, and, and in that, that was one of the points that he made, that w- within the church there are going to be younger Christians and older Christians, not necessarily in, in their age, but in their maturity. And, and we have to have room for people that are at different places in their spiritual growth and understanding. And we cannot expect everybody to see things exactly the way we do because to our original point, we wouldn't even be in fellowship with ourselves from before when we when we originally became Christians. Yeah, it was my understanding, like when I was when I was first converted uh, to Christ, uh, the people who taught me went to a church building that had the sign uh, "Church of Christ" out front. And my understanding, as I learned more about that, the the Restoration movement is that like you were saying, it, it was originally focused on this idea of bringing disparate people together. Um, that whole speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. Doesn't, it's not a binding of silence. It's a, it's an allowance, right? There, there is a Liberty there that, that allows people with different understandings or different being in different places in their faith to exist together. As long as we speak where the Bible speaks. And, and that is that is kind of the basis uh, in, in that phrase for the unity that should exist between all believers. And that idea of a unity movement, not, not compromising truth, but mm-hmm. of unifying people with the truth, that is attractive to me. <laughs> that, is, that is what I want to be part of. And, and I think it goes back to, the, to that, uh, that, that principle, that concept that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And and I love that idea and I I hope that we can move back in that direction within the restoration movement that we once again embrace the idea that we should be a unity movement because Christianity is a unity movement. Christianity is all about and this was really what I what I want to segue to next is is just even what's the importance of unity? Why is unity so important? And I think that as we read through the New Testament, we find that that's exactly what Christianity is all about, is about Jesus. Ephesians 1.10 says that it's Jesus' mission to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. So Christianity is about reconciliation. It's about unity. That doesn't mean that truth is unimportant. It doesn't mean that there's nothing right and there's nothing wrong. It doesn't mean that we just overlook things that are are wrong, um, but it does mean that we have to be moving closer and closer to one another rather than pushing one another away. Yes. And and the standard for for who we are as humans 
like you were saying, it's, it's in Christ. It's reconciled in Jesus. Uh, further in that same letter in Ephesians 2, it, it is the blood of Jesus that brings people who are far apart together. Um, I guess in the first century, Jews and Gentiles were about as far apart from each other as you could get, uh, at, at least theologically speaking. And it's the blood of Christ in Ephesians 2 that brings those two together and forms a new person, a brand new person. And so if if there is a group of different people, it would be the first century church, where you have Jews and Gentiles, radically different backgrounds, completely different uh, understandings before they come to Jesus. And now they should have the same framework that kind of gives them guidance for living their life. And all of them are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. All of them are brought near in in the body of Christ, and all of them are being built up into the temple of the Lord in, for, as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. And, and it, it is central to who we are as believers, this concept of accepting people who are different, not because uh, of anything in themselves or in me, but because of Christ. And so there is a sense in which a lack of unity or a divisive spirit is an assault upon that that plan of God to to reconcile things in Jesus and upon even the blood of Christ himself that was shed to unite people together. And so I, I think we need to, to pause sometimes and take a look at how serious an offense a divisive spirit actually is. You know, that brings up something so important that I don't think we acknowledge enough, and that is that I think a lot of times division is based on a fear, and and a lot of times it's a fear of what will God think if I embrace someone that he doesn't embrace? What, what will God think if I'm in fellowship with someone with whom he's not in fellowship? What will God think if I call this person my brother or my sister and God doesn't actually include them in his covenant family? I think, though, what ought to scare us more than that is what will God think if I don't embrace this person that he does embrace? What will God think if I reject this person that he has accepted? There is far more in the New Testament about that than there is about the other. We have this idea that for some reason, and I'm not really sure why, that God can't distinguish between those who belong to him and those who don't, as if there's going to be some sort of guilt by association. And it's like, well, I know that Stephen was a faithful disciple of Jesus, but he was hanging out with this other person, and I really can't distinguish between the two, so I'm going to condemn both Stephen and this other person. And and that's not how it works. When we read Revelation, Jesus' letters to the seven churches, Jesus is very specific that he knows, even within a single congregation, who belongs to him and who has been unfaithful. And so I I think that we have to recognize that the greater danger is in rejecting someone that God has accepted rather than accepting someone that God will ultimately reject. Yeah, I've heard people argue, make the exact argument you're saying sometimes, and it's almost— it's almost as though who God has fellowship with sometimes we think depends upon whom we choose to have fellowship with. Mm. Like, like we can't mm. include this person because what if God doesn't? Then God won't. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he won't. I, I like your point about the churches in Revelation. God is able to make the distinction, e- even if I can't. Uh, one of the things that makes God God and not me is that God is the ultimate judge. God is the one who is able to truly see into the hearts and minds to make the the distinction between the intentions of the heart 
that I can't make. And so one of the one of the things that gives me peace is coming to God as a servant instead of coming to God as an equal and allowing God to to determine who he will have fellowship with regardless of what I decide. And so if I make a mistake, hopefully, as you mentioned, it would be a mistake on the side of being gracious. Because I think that's the attitude I see in Jesus, who on the cross says, you know, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He doesn't put a qualifier on that. He doesn't say, Father, forgive only the ones that one day you will ultimately have fellowship with. I mean, he, he doesn't do that. And if I'm going to have that attitude, which we're called to have in Philippians 2, if I'm going to have that same mind, that same attitude, then hopefully my mistake is in the direction of grace, uh, not, not the direction of exclusion. Yeah. And, and I think that, and obviously there, there are going to be times where we do, we are called to exclude for lack of a better word. There are, there are times where we are called to make distinction between those that are followers of Jesus and those that aren't. Um, in fact, Paul even talks about to the Corinthian church who he scolds for being divisive and for their division, but he also says it's obvious that there's going to be divisions among you because there are some of you that aren't doing what's right. And so obviously there's going to be divisions between those that are, are following Jesus and those that aren't. So there are going to be times where we say, I cannot be in fellowship with you because you're walking this way, or I'm, I cannot be in fellowship with you because you aren't walking in step with the gospel. So let's talk about that for a second and talk about what are those essential truths? They're all calling all kinds of ways of talking about the the core, fundamental, essential things that we need to to be in agreement on in order for us to have fellowship. And again, for two thousand years, Christians have divided and argued about what are those core essential truths, but but how do we go about uh, defining those and finding, as you said, that framework? Uh, one of the rules that I have personally is that if the, if the biblical text doesn't explicitly state something, then I have to be very cautious if I'm going to use it as a litmus test for who is my brother or sister or who isn't. And when I say explicitly state it, I don't mean me stringing together 10 different verses in order to construct something, right? That's not an explicit statement. I mean, where you have, uh, like your example in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul explicitly comes to this brother and says he is behaving in, in such a way that even the Gentiles wouldn't have anything to do with him because he he violates explicit moral statements. So when you, when you come across things like, for example, just the Ten Commandments, just to, to use an example, you know, don't murder, that's an explicit statement. So I could not have fellowship with somebody who is actively engaged in that as a lifestyle. And that's kind of an extreme example, but that gives you an idea. So that, that's the first rule that I have uh, or, or principle. And then as you go through the text, you'll come ac across places where I think uh, the New Testament writers... We'll, we'll kind of put out different different guidelines, like Ephesians 4, to stay in that letter. You have this section where Paul kind of mentions uh, the basis for the unity that we're to maintain in that in the statement of the seven ones. You know, there's, uh, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so that's kind of a very basic foundational framework we have to agree on those things. 
we have to agree that there is one body, that there is one spirit guiding that body, that there is one hope, one Lord, uh, that there is a single faith, right? We don't have multiple religions. There, there is a faith, and there is one baptism, and there is one God. If we can't agree on those things, then we need to work on that before we can have the unity that is being described there. And so th that's kind of how I begin to work through that process. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and it's funny, talking again about um, Thomas Campbell's 13 Propositions, that was actually one of the things that was part of his original idea was that we only need to have as matters of fellowship or, as he would say, communion, uh, things that are explicitly stated in Scripture. And somebody once said that the things over which Christians most divide are not over the things that Scripture says, but over the things that Scripture doesn't say. And we we get we get so crossways with each other over the things that we have assumed, and we'll talk about this later, I know, when we get to Romans 14, but um, the things that we—the conclusions to which we have come about things that Scripture doesn't explicitly uh, address. And so I think that you're exactly right. We have to stick to what does Scripture actually say. But but again, I think you're right that there are these lists, there are these helpful tools to help us to know these are essential truths, these are essential doctrines. And that way, I think that unity has to come down to these these are the things that are essential truths, and if you are not in step with those, then you are not in step with the gospel. It's not that you and I don't agree, because who cares whether or not I agree with someone right. or whether or not they agree with me. What matters is whether or not we are in harmony with reality. And in fact, I like to use the word reality when I'm talking about truth, because Jesus has brought this new reality, and if you are walking in a way that isn't in step with the gospel, then you are out of step with reality. And of course, there's going to be—I like—I love your word, harmony—there's going to be disharmony, there's going to be disunity— when somebody is not walking in step with reality. And so we have to agree on what reality is. And Ephesians 4 is this great list. Another one that I often think about is 1 Corinthians 15. And and Paul there, uh, a lot of times we stop at, at the first few verses, but uh, a book that was really helpful for me was Scott McKnight's uh, The King Jesus Gospel. And he actually takes it all the way through, I think it's verse uh, 28, and, and he lays out all of these things that are the the core, most important, essential matters of the good news, of the gospel. And, and Paul's whole point there is about the resurrection. That whole chapter is about the resurrection. And if we're not in agreement about the resurrection of the dead, and by that he's talking about the coming resurrection of the dead, then we can't really be in fellowship. And in fact, a verse like that we always like to use, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good morals. There he's talking about the bad company of these teachers that are teaching there isn't going to be a resurrection of the dead. He says, if you're keeping this kind of company, it's going to affect your morals. It's going to affect how you live when you're hanging out with people that don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I would say that, that our eschatology even, what we believe is the end of this story that we're a part of, how we believe this story is going to end, it not only affects our doctrine, 
but it affects our morality. And, and I think that that's, that's a significant part of this, that if you believe something different about Jesus, if you believe something different about humanity, if you believe something different about the body and the, the future of the body, then it's not only going to affect whether or not we can agree on paper. It's going to, it's going to have radically different uh, effects on the way that we live our lives, on our morality. And, and it was in Corinth. I think that's part of the sexual immorality problem that was going on in Corinth is because they didn't understand the future resurrection of the body. It was affecting their morality. So I think all of these unity questions, we have to realize it, they're more than just theoretical. It's not just about whether or not we can agree on a creed or on a set of things we could write down on a piece of paper. It's whether or not our lives are, to use your word again, harmony, whether or not they're, they're in harmony. Yeah. I absolutely agree. And maybe one of the things, another distinction to add to this, um, we see explicitly stated these different doctrinal truths. I, I love 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, another thing that I, I tend to think of sometimes is the distinction between interpretation and application. Mm. Um, when you read through the text, the interpretation is what it says. Uh, language is logical. Some, some languages, the logic is a little more fluid than others, but the construct of language itself is a logical process. And so as you work through language logically, it has something that it communicates, very much like a mathematical equation. It is a different way of writing out logic. It has something it communicates. Um, the, the interpretation is what is communicated. What is the truth? So the interpretation, uh, to go back to the, the commandments, to the ten, do not murder. The interpretation is, don't don't kill people. <laughs> but then, what is the application? How does that apply? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will take that commandment, you, you shall not murder, and he will step it down all the way, even to, to how you think about other people, to what you say to other people. And that's the application. And, and so when we come through the biblical text, you and I might agree, we, we might come to something that says, you know, don't do this. And we agree, okay, we can't do that. But then as we apply that truth to our lives, you and I might apply it in different ways. Um, for example, with the preaching of the gospel, in the first century, they traveled a lot by boat and they wrote letters. Today, we use the internet, we use video, we travel by airplane. There, there's all these different ways that we apply the call to teach or to preach the gospel. The fact that we do that differently doesn't mean we disagree about the interpretation. We're just applying it differently. And so sometimes the, the people disagree and they get into fights over an application of a principle. And, and that comes back to the idea of harmony. If, I, if I'm applying truth in, in one way within that framework and you're applying it in a separate way, we're not disagreeing. We're doing what God says in a slightly different way. So we are in harmony with one another. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of people get into fights over the fact that, well, you're not doing this, what God said, the exact same way that I am. And in that point, you're not arguing over what the Bible says. You're arguing over your preferred way of putting it into practice. And, and that's a terrible, a terrible mistake. Yeah. And that's such a great point. And I think that that even... That even goes to how we handle disagreements, because we really only have to have these conversations when we when we have oneness to begin with you know i i i handle 
my children's behavior and my children's belief system and my children's whatever differently than I do the neighbor's behavior or belief system. I don't get into what they believe or to what they're doing in the same way that I handle with my children because we're family and because I'm their parent and we have this relationship. And so I think when we even look at when Jesus comes to the first century Jewish world, there is all kinds of disagreement within the within the nation of Israel and even divisions within the nation of Israel but even some of the the disagreements that existed didn't necessarily result in divisions they were still doing life together even though they had radically different as you said applications of these biblical truths they still considered each other family and they treated each other differently than they did samaritans or gentiles that's a whole other issue but but they right. they they still saw each other as family and when jesus comes he sees them all as family. And when he gathers together 12 disciples, 12 apostles that he'll send out into the world, they even are radically different from each other. And the way they had been applying the law and the writings were very different from one another. And so I think that we have to recognize that within the body of Christ, there are going to be these differences, but what makes us the body of Christ? What makes us one? And, And those things all have to come back to Jesus. Jesus is who makes us one. We're not one because we all agree. We're not one because we all apply these things in the exact same way. We're one because of what Jesus, what God through Jesus has done for us. We're one because we together are the dwelling place of God by his spirit, Ephesians 2. So we have to recognize that it's what God has done that makes us one, and then we have to have the eagerness to maintain that unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But again, I think just recognizing what you're saying, that there's going to be differences in our application, is an important is an important truth to embrace that we don't feel like, well, I have to get rid of Stephen because he doesn't apply everything the same way I do, or, or Stephen has to get rid of Wes because Wes doesn't apply things the same way. We agree on what is true. We just disagree sometimes on on how to live out that truth in, in our daily life or even in the church sometimes. And, and the beauty of that disagreement is that you can stretch me. If if we're all the same, then there's no growth. Mm. And running into people who apply things in a different way, who, who see things slightly differently, uh, within that framework of agreement, within that, that unity that we have in Jesus, uh, that's how growth happens. And, and sometimes we might find ourselves stagnant, and if we look up, perhaps it is because we have surrounded us with people who are not stretching us, who are not forcing us to grow. And so we lose out. Not only not only do we lose out on the relationships that we should be having with other people, but we lose out on the growth that happens when we find ourselves in harmony with others and we don't apply things the same way. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. It's a blessing because it forces us to come back and say, is what I'm doing not right or wrong? Sometimes that's not the right way to phrase it, but is what I'm doing really the best way to live out the gospel in my life. And if I think, if I think that I always have the best way, then maybe we should study pride instead. <laughs> but mm-hmm. this idea of, of us being drawn together through our differences is a really beautiful thing that the gospel of Christ does, that, that really only Jesus can do. 
Yeah. Oh, for sure. And that's such a beautiful way to say that. And, you know, one of the things that I think, to be very practical here, I think that one of the things, not just that we need to agree about, because I don't think it's so much that we need to agree about baptism, but but I think that baptism plays this role of being this unifying experience. So for Israel, the the idea of them coming through the sea— the parting of the Red Sea and them coming out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, even for future generations who didn't personally experience the parting of the Red Sea, that that transition out of slavery and into the Promised Land through the water, it was a unifying experience that all 12 tribes experienced this deliverance through the water, and it became this this watershed moment by which they could they could look back and say we've all had the same experience and i look at the way paul talks about baptism and even peter for that matter throughout their letters he's not talking to unbaptized people saying hey y'all need to get baptized he's talking to christians to disciples saying Remember your baptism. Remember what happened at your baptism. Galatians 3, when he's talking about these Jewish Christians who are trying to force Gentile Christians to be circumcised, he says, no, everybody who has been baptized is an heir of the promises that God made to Abraham. We are family because we have experienced this baptism in the name of Jesus. And so that has to be, and I think that that's one of the things I appreciate, not only about Churches of Christ being a unity movement, but also our heavy emphasis on baptism, because baptism should be, for every person who wants to be a follower of Jesus, it should be this moment. I can think back. I remember when I experienced that that moment of going from slavery to freedom through the water of baptism, and it unifies me not only with all of the living saints, but also with all those that have gone before, and even God's people before Christ, even, even the Old Testament saints, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, were all unified together because of what we've experienced at baptism. That's beautiful. <laughs> I think you're exactly right. And and I and I think that that's that's one of those things that for me, it that has to that has to be there. And so you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of believers in the world, and a lot of people who would claim to be followers of Jesus. And and that's why I I I think that baptism can be one of those things that, in addition to some of these core doctrines or essential beliefs um, like like it are laid out in Ephesians 4, which includes the one baptism, um, and also in 1 Corinthians 15, in addition to those things that we could sort of put down on paper, baptism is this, uh, this very um, incarnate, this very uh, physical moment of experience uh, that we can all draw on and all should be able to draw on. So that's why I think that any discussion about unity is incomplete without that that idea of of what Jesus told his apostles to do, to go and to make disciples by teaching them and by baptizing them. So I think that baptism has to be uh, an, an essential part of, of discussion about unity. Unfortunately, sometimes it becomes a, a question of our understanding of baptism rather than our experience of baptism, but that that may be a whole nother a whole nother issue. But but I think that even that can segue into Romans 14 
Because again, I don't think a discussion about unity is complete without a discussion of Romans 14. Um, so let's talk about that and, and how that plays into uh, this conversation that we're having about unity. Because obviously, the church in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, um, had had disagreements, and Paul knew they would have disagreements going forward as well. Yeah, and uh, this is often where I come when people have different applications of a biblical truth. Um, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting that Paul's answer. There's a couple things. He, he approaches it from the side of uh, from both directions. There's going to be somebody who feels like they can't do something, and somebody who feels like they can. And if you if you can, then you're the stronger brother, and your job is not to grab the weaker brother and, and pull them up to where they are out of their comfort zone. Your job in chapter 15 and verse 1 is to bear with them, not to judge them, not to ridicule them, not to you know, incessantly bother them, but to bear with them, uh, just like God bears with us. And uh, then you get into chapter 14, and I've heard people say, well, really, Romans 14 is about things that don't matter. I disagree, <laughs> because you've got, you've got really strong language in that chapter. Uh, you know, verse 23, if you can't do something in faith, then it's a sin. Well, if, if we really believe that sin is a serious thing, then Romans 14 is not about stuff that doesn't matter. It's about things that are incredibly important. And uh, one of the words going through the text that for a long time I misunderstood was that word. It's translated in the, in the ESV as opinions. And I used to think, oh, well, I mean, this is just stuff that you think. Like, you have an opinion for the color of the carpet. But when it comes to what the Bible says, well, there's no opinions there. That That's really wrong. <laughs> and the word there, it is a well-reasoned position. It's not my preference. It's what I think something teaches. For example, just to kind of keep the uh, theme of baptism, the mode of baptism how you baptize somebody is never explicitly stated in the text. Like there's, there's not a place where you go and it says, when you baptize somebody, you must say this exact phrase. You must dunk them under the water for four and a half seconds. And if their pinky pops up, you have to do it over. Right. I mean, that stuff's not there. So what I do is I go through the text and I, I pull passages together. I, I come up with an understanding based off of everything I read. And I would say at the end of that, here is what the Bible teaches about baptism. Actually, what that is, is that's my opinion. That is my well-reasoned position. And just like the Supreme Court renders opinions, that is the way Paul is using this word. It's not, it's not a preference. It's not a passing thought. It is my well-reasoned, logically thought-out, scriptural position. And when we see that, when that is what Paul is talking about, all of a sudden Romans 14 becomes a lot more serious. Yes, uh, absolutely. I love the way that you, be, I, I'm totally in agreement. That that word dialogismos, the, right at the, the middle of that word, the root of that word is logos. It's, it's this idea of reason and logic where we get the word logic. And, and I, I, I'm exactly with you that, that when I, that passage was taught to me growing up, or at least when I read it, I assumed, as you said, that opinions were things that, that were, were non-biblical, non-doctrinal uh, 
types of of questions. But even as you read through the context, he's talking about he's talking about things that, as you said, really do matter. He's talking about what what foods you can eat and what foods you can't eat. What what days are still religious holidays and which ones aren't, and and should you celebrate those or should you not celebrate any of them? And ironically, he doesn't really give an answer to any of those questions. He just says some of you are going to reach this logical conclusion and others of you are going to reach this other logical conclusion. And I think that we've convinced ourselves that if you're reasonable and if you're logical and you read scripture, then there's only one conclusion you can ever come to. And it's the conclusion I've come to because I'm reasonable and I'm logical. And this is the conclusion I came to. So if you're reasonable and logical, this is the one you'll come to too. And we've created all kinds of hermeneutical frameworks and and uh, ways of reasoning through so that people come to the same conclusions we do. But even a lot of those types of of rules and frameworks and traditions of how to come to these reasonable conclusions, we've imposed on the text rather than getting it from the text itself. So even a lot of those things. Now, that's not to say, to your point, that the the position to which we've come is wrong. In fact, it might very well be right, and and something that's different than that might very well be wrong. But at the same time, we have to embrace what Paul says. And he says, when someone comes and they come into the body of Christ, do not quarrel over your dialogismos, over your reasonings, your conclusions, your inferences, um, that, that don't and that word there, quarrel, I think has to do with with dividing. I, I don't think it means don't discuss your differences of opinions, because that's what we do, and that's how we grow. And I think he expected the Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome to continue to discuss their differences and hopefully come to a, a common understanding, but not to divide over them and to say, well, you don't really belong here. We're not going to welcome you. You're out because you've come to a different conclusion than the one to which we've come. And that's what human beings have always done. And unfortunately, that's what we continue to do in the church, even though Paul is very explicit. It's so funny. We're, we're talking about things that are explicitly taught and things that are just what we've we've gathered or inferred from the text what we think the text is implicitly teaching, and we have preferred these implicit things rather than this explicit teaching, which says, don't argue over your opinions or don't quarrel over your opinions. Yes, and and it's it's actually easier to, to, to fight. It's easier to draw the battle lines and say, they're out, we're in, because then I don't have to deal with you. Yes, and I like what you said that the the quarreling there is. He's not saying don't discuss. He's not saying don't have disagreements, uh, discussions. Uh, what he's saying is don't divide. I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, and, and what we lose when we do that dividing is we lose the growth. We lose we lose the ability to reason through things together to have that iron sharpening iron moment. And I think the reason we prefer that is because disagreeing with people is uncomfortable. Uh, we want to go, uh, and I speak for myself, you know, this is just a human temptation. I want to go somewhere where everything is going to be done in a way I'm used to, in the order I'm used to, in in the manner I'm used to. And, and I don't want anything to happen that makes me uncomfortable. I, I don't want, uh, like, like, maybe I think that there, there, there has to be multiple cups in the communion service and I'm not going to go somewhere where they have one cup because 
that might make me uncomfortable. Well, I, I think I really think Paul's answer, if I approached him with that, would be you need to get over it. You need to to deal with the discomfort for the sake of your brothers, for the sake of your sisters. And you need to have discussions and work through this together. But simply saying, well, you do this differently with me. We can't be together. I don't think Romans 14 allows for that. Yeah. And, you know, to, and to that point that, that you're making that both Romans 14 and then even when you get, when you get into chapter 15, the, the obligation of the strong is to bear with the weak. The obligation of, of every single Christian is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that means we have to make sacrifices. That means we have to lay down what we want, how we prefer things to go, how we prefer things to be, in order to maintain unity. Now, of course, again, that doesn't mean we compromise on any essential truth, but it does mean that there are going to be times when for the sake of family. And that's what we do in family. That's what we do when we go to Thanksgiving dinner at our family's house. We know that there are certain things we probably don't need to talk about. I would like to talk about them, but we can't talk about them because Thanksgiving dinner is going to be ruined if we even bring the subject up. And so for the sake of unity, for the sake of family, we do things this way. Grandma wants this things to go this way. And so for the sake of grandma, we do things that way. For the sake of aunt so-and-so, we do things that way because we love them more than we love doing things the way we want to do them. And that's that's the heart of Christianity itself. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ, is to consider others to be more significant than ourselves, Philippians chapter 2. So if we have this attitude that says, no, it has to be done the way I think, the way I like, the way I've always done things, then not only are we out of harmony with Romans 14, I would say we're out of harmony with the gospel itself. Yeah, and a very worldly example that goes right back with what you were saying. Uh, I had a friend in college who is vegetarian um, for religious reasons, and he would come to parties and or to gatherings, and instead of demanding that whoever was hosting something, instead of calling them and saying, "Hey, I'm a vegetarian. You have to make vegetarian food for me," he would just bring his own. I mean, he he knew that there were things that were not going to be prepared the way that he could eat them, and so he brought his own food, and that was that was amazing to me. You know, so here is the person who has the scruple or who has, you know, he can't do what everybody else is doing. Instead of demanding that everybody conform to him, he took care of his own conscience and then he dwelled with others. You know, and we might find ourselves in a local church where we just can't do what everybody else is doing. Um, I keep coming back to the Lord's Supper, but I, I know I know people who who believe that the bread has to come from a single loaf. And in the place where they are, they don't do it that way. Well, instead of showing up and demanding, hey, you guys have to change what you've been doing and, and do things now my way, guess what they do? They bring their own loaf of bread, and they have their loaf, and when everybody prays, they pray over their loaf of bread, they break it then, and they eat it, and it has led to really good discussions and conversations, but but it's not, Romans 14 and 15 is not just a one-way street, it works both directions. The strong makes concessions, and the brother from the weak position should also be willing to make concessions. Otherwise, it doesn't work because, like you said, I mean, that's what families do. And if we really are brothers and sisters, 
then we really are going to show love and kindness and, and really uh, an elevation of the other. We're going to lift other people up, treat them as more important than ourselves, and strive for peace, not for my way. And, and if we, that, that's where unity comes from. Yeah. And I think family is such a great, that's, that's what we're called to be. And, and it, it was to your earlier point about Jews and Gentiles, that's a radical type of calling. It's a radical change of their lifestyle. People like Paul probably grew up as a Pharisee. When Paul was a young Pharisee, he likely would wash everything he ate wash himself, wash his utensils, wash his cooking dishes and his food, not because he was afraid of germs, they, they didn't do germs back then, but because he was afraid that something might have been touched by a Gentile, that a Gentile might have touched something that touched something that touched his food, and so he needed to make sure that all of the Gentile uh, defilement was washed off. And to go from that to sharing a table with Gentiles is a radical change. And this is this is the the unity to which they were being called and why it was so wrong for people like Peter to step away from that unity table to 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 go back to not eating with Gentiles when those types of divisions arose. And and everybody was being called to I like that word you used, make concessions. Everybody was called to make sacrifices. If that means hey, at dinner tonight, we're only going to eat kosher food because we're having so-and-so at our house. Or tonight, yeah, I'm, I'm going to eat something I don't normally eat, or I'm going to be at a table with food I don't normally eat. We often joke about how, how happy Jewish people must have been when all things, all food were, were declared clean and they could <laughs> eat pork. But I, I think... I think a, a, an equivalent to that might be if God came and said, hey, Stephen, you should really consider eating bat. We would be like, uh, Lord, I, I really don't want to eat a bat. I, it's not that I think it's wrong to eat a bat. It's just that we don't eat bat in our culture. We don't think that would be good. And it doesn't matter who tells me that it would be yummy. I don't care. I'm not going to eat a bat. And there's a lot of other foods that would be on that list of things I'm not going to eat. And, and if somebody else eats those foods, it's going to be really hard not not just for moral reasons, but just for cultural reasons. And so there's so much that goes into this. And and to your earlier point, life is so much easier when you're just with people who think like you and look like you and act like you and talk like you and do everything the way that you're doing them. But that's not the church. The church is a lot of very different people being called to live together in oneness. And it's going to require every one of us to make sacrifices and demands that none of us kick anybody out or be unwelcoming to anyone that Jesus is welcoming into the family. Amen. Absolutely. Well, thank you, brother, for this wonderful conversation. And I, I hope that, again, I, I don't know that we gave anybody any any answers, but but I think that that unity is more about something that is lived out rather than something that we can spell out on a piece of paper. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. Special thanks to Travis Polly as well as our McDermott Road Church family for helping to make this podcast possible. And special thanks to every one of you. We hope that you enjoyed this Bible study and that you'll join us next time. We love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.